Welcome to Project Herpetoculture, episode four. I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, with the inimitable Philip Leitz. And we have an awesome guest um, today, someone I've been uh, stoked to, to um, talk to here. So um, before we do that, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, first of all, I want to give a huge shout out to Dylan and the Animals at Home Network for hosting us. Um, we're new to this whole podcasting thing and it's a few episodes in now and now we're just remembering, Oh, we should probably like acknowledge <laughs> our gracious host. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Dylan, if you're listening, thank you so much for, uh, believing in our little operation here and, um, encouraging <laughs> us, giving us a good start. And, um, yeah. And I also wanted to mention that we set up an Instagram page for, um, project Herpital culture at project Herpital culture. Um, give us a follow there. We'll be posting updates and, um, yeah, announcing guests. Maybe we'll have some things down the road where we ask for questions from listeners and all that stuff. Heck yeah. Um, anything you want to add Phil before we, we get introduce our guest? Uh, no, that's, uh, that's, yeah, covered it, man. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So our guest today is, uh, Connor Jones. Um, who I became um, familiar with through the magic of Instagram. Um, his handle right now is a uh, philothamnus or philothamnus. How is that correctly pronounced? Do you know? I pronounced it philothamnus, but I don't think it, I don't think it really matters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. That's what I thought. Philothamnus. So um, yeah, Connor, um, I have been following you on Instagram for, I guess it's probably been at least a year now, maybe a little bit longer. And have just been really inspired by the stuff that you're doing with um, the species you're keeping and just how you're keeping them, your whole approach. Um, and I'd love to get into kind of nitty gritty of that. But to begin, I'm curious, um, when and how did you kind of start with herpetoculture? What was your introduction to the art? I saw that one coming. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's not that interesting. Like, I don't know. It's not as interesting as your story. It's definitely not like a, a heart robber or anything. Um, I don't know. Like this is kind of off topic a little bit, but my dad kind of grew up in a very rural area. And I think he kind of wanted me to be kind of have that same childhood, like grow up in a rural area or like have nature around me and like he was hunting from a young age and everything. So I think he tried to implement that aspect of his childhood in mine. So we live, we're like, we're not that far away from the nearest town, but we're kind of out in the country. And I don't know, as a child, I would like go out in the woods a lot and play around and stuff. Um, so that's probably where like nature came into it. Um, when I was really little, my dad, he had a best friend and um, he was, he was kind of a character. Like, I don't know exactly what all he kept, but I know back in the day, like he had, this was like 40 years ago, he had like a King Cobra and stuff. So <laughs> I don't know how legal it all was, or I don't know any of the logistics, but he had some crazy stuff. And I, I think he saw that I was kind of interested in it. So he got me a bearded dragon um that was kind of the start and i don't even think that thing lived like a year but <laughs> it was not taken care of properly um 
but that definitely sparked something. Like I was kind of into that. Um, I think I kind of got into fish keeping though before reptiles were my main interest. I'm kind of happy that I did too. Cause I think like when you look at reptile keepers, like if you go on YouTube and you, you look at stuff, it's not all that like nature based or like it's not reminiscent or they're not trying to follow like a more natural. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, like follow that. But with fish keeping, it's like the whole, it's a whole nother world. Like even just getting into the the beginning of it, you pretty much see a lot of like natural replication. They're using like rocks and wood to somewhat replicate natural environments. So I'm I'm kind of glad that I got into that first. And I was into fish keeping for like three or four years. So I kind of went from that into reptile. And even though I'm not exactly proud of my first footsteps in reptiles, like I can't fall pythons. It was, it was pretty typical. Um, I remember watching, I don't know if I want to say it, but like some of the pretty typical pet doer people out there. I remember just like setting up a 40 gallon. I did the foam background with the cocoa coir, some pothos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all pretty, pretty typical stuff. Um, and then, I don't know, I kind of, at some point just got exposed to like what y'all are doing people in that, I call it like that realm of herpticulture. Um, <laughs> I, guess I, I kind of just got interested in it. So I think that's probably the story. How, how, how old are you, Connor? Just so I know. I'm 20. I just oh, you're 20. 20. Dude, you're pretty young yeah you're super young okay wow that's very impressive very nice man um I, I, do you mind uh so roy i just want to say i don't mean to cut you off in any way um uh yeah connor please feel free to meander like one of the things that we want to do with this show and um something that we i think roy and i both value is how um the there can be things that happen that are tangential to what all of us are focused on under the broad umbrella of herpeticulture. And I think some of those things that are super tangential that seem like they might be somewhat off topic are what really give a lot of character and interest and intrigue to what we do. And also tend to be um, just, they make some more interesting stories and can be a little bit more educational and make things more relatable. So um, at any point in time, please feel free to like, totally go off the rails and go off topic and talk about trains or some shit. If you want, it's all good. Yeah. Feel totally at ease with that. Um, but I also wanted to ask before we move on, um, what do you think it is someone who has spent time keeping fish and working with fish? What is it about aquaculture that is, do you have any, is there any insight or anything that you can, um, identify or that you can think of that would, lead you to maybe understand why so many reptile people aren't thinking with that same, through that same lens as with freshwater fish, where there's like, you know, why is it that so many of us uh, in herpeticulture tend to make things more medical or make things more withdrawn from the sort of the natural environment? Any ideas? Honestly, I really couldn't answer that. I have no, no clue. I mean, <laughs> And it's actually like it's been quite a while since I really was into fish keeping. Like at least, at least like three years. Okay. So 
I've been away from that for a while, so I don't know. I haven't really thought about it in depth either. So that's that's cool. I was just curious because I've I've I know that there are a few people who um, I've heard this sentiment before that you know you know, what is that saying where it's like, you know, you see people buy a $20 fish and put it in a thousand dollar aquarium, but then you see people buy a thousand dollar lizard and put, or a reptile and put it in a $20 aquarium, you know? So it's what, I wonder what it is about that inversion that happens. What, you know, what, but I was just curious anyway, sorry, uh, go ahead, Roy. (laughs) Well, I think I actually, there's something that just came to mind for me in that, in that dynamic, which is, I think that a lot of times when people um, get reptiles, I mean, there's, there's different types of reptile keepers, which I think we all, we all know and understand, you know, being in the herpetoculture hobby, but, um, or, or trade or art or practice. I, I, I don't like to just call it a hobby, um, yeah. but, um, but it's a habit. <laughs> but um, I think that people often want something that they can like hold or interact with or like carry around. And I think there's something about like, because like a fish isn't, it's not a pet that you're going to hold. It's, it's like, they're almost more exclusively for display and because they're for display, there's like an imperative placed on the beauty of the display, which includes, you know, the whole environment, the tank and everything. Um, that's just something that occurred to me. I don't, I don't know if that's actually, um, a relevant, um, piece of the puzzle, but yeah, no, it definitely, it definitely seems to be, you know, that there's something about, um, also I think maybe with, you know, with fish, they, it seems more foreign in a way because it's, you know, it's living in this sort of weird inverted liquid world where, you know, I can't live in that water but that fish can. So I better make it as nice as possible and as like well-made and put together and perfect as possible uh, in order to make sure this fish doesn't. And I I mean, I don't know, maybe it also seems to me that maybe um, people inherently view fish as more sensitive in a captive environment and people maybe view reptiles more, you know, because you can, so many of us grow up, grow up and walk out our, into our backyards and find reptiles. And so we're like, ah, they must, it must just be fine. Kind of the same thing as me. I don't know. It's just a spitball in here. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, there's, these are all little pieces of the, of it. I think mm-hmm. um, it's definitely something that interests me though, is yeah, just, just like, I don't know. I think there's also something that's coming to mind right now that, that Ron offered actually the last time we, um, we recorded, we, we recorded with Ron St. Pierre and he, um, he said like, was it Ron or no? Yeah. It was actually yeah. it was actually Eric. Eric said this, I think. Oh, okay. That. But Eric said like, um, you're already weeding out a large portion of the population that that's not going to do basic chemistry of like, <laughs> water tests. Yeah, yeah. You're, <laughs> you're actually right. weeding out like a huge portion of the population that's like, I don't want to do that, you know, and or that's like beyond what I feel capable of, you know, and um, maybe it takes a little bit more of a an intricate or discerning mindset to be a fish keeper. Um, whereas re- reptiles are, are so almost to a fault, I think regarded as these, um, hardy creatures, mm-hmm. you know, the, mm-hmm. the durable pet. <laughs> yeah, totally. I could, I think that's a pretty reasonable, uh, pretty reasonable outlook. Um, I thought of something else uh, that I wanted to ask you, Connor. Um, so you mentioned getting that bearded dragon 
and thinking that maybe that thing didn't last more than a year. So how did you go from, or can you, can you talk a little bit about that road from, I had a bearded dragon and it didn't last a year to I'm now keeping these, these beautifully decorated, uh, extremely well put together, well thought out and well-maintained like captive ecosystems. Like how did that, tell us a little bit about that progression for you. First of all, thank you. That's a big compliment. Um, totally. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like it's pretty fuzzy. I was probably, probably like seven or eight when I got that bearded dragon, but I'm pretty sure it was in a 20 gallon and I know we had sand, um, which isn't like necessarily bad, but it definitely, I highly doubt we had like a linear UVB bulb. <laughs> I don't, I don't really remember like too much how the tank looked, but, um, I know it wasn't great. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think I kind of like, once I got older and I started kind of like making projects for myself and working on those, I wanted to implement nature into it because I've grown up around it. Um, Think on that well so uh, let me let me i, I want to ask because I, I really think there could be a lot of interesting stuff um because i never personally i'm coming to this with um a certain level of of ignorance because um i don't keep anything with live plants i don't keep anything um the last thing i had that was bioactive or some of the anoles that i've got um and you know i i obviously also understand that there's some weirdness around the term bioactive. So I'm not trying to use that as a blanket piece of terminology either. Uh, but I kind of approached this. I never had that intrigue. When I got into reptiles, I was so much more drawn to um, uh, a, a much less like a different, a different way of mimicking the natural environment. And I was much more interested in desert stuff and much more interested in lizards in particular. So there's a certain part of um, the work that you do that I am, you know, it just goes way over my head because you're thinking about things at a level that I'm not, you're working with factors that I'm not including other living organisms other than your reptiles. And I'm, you know, so uh, what were some of your first forays into that style of keeping? So like you had this bearded dragon and then what was like, do you remember the first time you set up, say something more live in terms of a terrarium? You know what? Actually, I think, I think I do. I remember setting up, like I caught one of those little American green tree frogs yeah. in a 10 gallon tank. And I threw it straight up taking a clump of grass and just putting it in the tank and then putting probably like cocoa coir or something around the sides of it and i don't think it lived but um you know i think i was trying to implement it at that point but i think when i got into aquariums is probably when i really started getting into plants because i remember doing planted aquariums i remember like buying all these weird plants that i don't even remember the species names of off of like ebay and stuff um yeah i mean i don't know i 
You're asking really deep questions about prepared for. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's no big deal, man. Totally. No pressure at all. Just anything, you know, whatever is very relaxed, you know? Yeah. Um, Let me think about it. So, I don't know. When I, when I got into keeping of just animals in general, I think from a pretty young age, like I was interested in implement, I think I already said this, but I was interested in like implementing nature. So I've always been kind of interested in it. I can't say that I was really great at taking care of plants until like maybe like two years ago, honestly, like I had like pothos and stuff before then, you know, just the things that I bought at Home Depot and somehow survived my neglect. Um, and then, yeah, I was kind of just using those little easy gap filler plants. Um, and then, yeah, like roughly two years ago, I started keeping house plants, which I see you got a couple in the background. So <laughs> those, are, those are my fiancés. I can't take any credit for those. Uh, man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I kind of got into it from house plants and I just kept pretty much everything to the time. Like and I got I actually got into house plants. Like I was keeping variegated plants and like some of the hyped plants, I guess, um, are trendy. And then I kind of started like roughly a year ago getting into I guess sort not really biotopes at that point, but just naturalistic enclosures which led me to trying to keep those plants alive. And then I got into biotopes, honestly, not that long ago. And the plants that I have, especially for the African species that I keep, I'm so limited on plants that I've kind of had to figure out with the small amount of plants that are cultivated, what I can actually keep alive. Because it's a pretty small window. Like out of all these lists, I can only find like a few of each, if that, you know, of each species or family of plants. Um, so I don't know. Well, can I, can I, can I pull on that a little bit? Cause this is actually something yeah. I'm really curious about. And I think this is something that you, I think that I have probably have some idea of how you go about doing this. Cause I, I do this obviously as well with the whole biotope thing. And, and, you know, I've, I'm curious though, how you, um, how you go about like honing in on like the region and finding plants from that region and, and going from there, like, is it Google scholar or just, just iNaturalist? Like, what are the tools you're using to figure out like, okay, this plant occurs in this area. Is that a house plant? Is it in cultivation? Can I get that? <laughs> you know, do I have to get seeds or can I get cuttings or, you know, what is that process like for you? So I was actually, I think I told you this, like I, I haven't been on iNaturalist that long. It's kind of changed. I'm, I wish I got into it sooner because now I'm looking at it. Like this is such a great resource. Um, I think the first website that I discovered that I like actually found a lot on was um, www.africanplants.com. You can probably oh, just look up. There you like, go. <laughs> um, and there's definitely, there's definitely faults in that website, but you can like look up a species obviously, but then you can also just off to the right, when you go to browse, um, there's just a list of a bunch of family species or like 
species of plants. Um, and you can click like Araceae. And then you can go a little farther down and it has Northwest, Central, East, and South Africa. So you can like uncheck wow, which region you're interested in looking at. Um, so a lot of the times I'm interested in like Central or, or I'm trying to find plants in a certain region. I'll like uncheck the ones I, I don't want to target. And then I'll click search and, you know, it'll pull up all the plants that are in that. Um, one of the faults of that website is it shows a native range map, which I love. I freaking love native range maps. <laughs> but it, it doesn't really distinguish like what's invasive or mm-hmm. not really supposed to be in that region. Um, so that's when I found, I actually wrote this one down because I knew I was, I, I kind of thought I was going to come across it. And so this will just bring you like straight to it. So powo.science.qkew.org. <laughs> um, and that's another website. It's, I think it's from, they're based in the UK. It's Royal Botanic Gardens Q, I think it's called. Um, and they have like, I think it's 68,000 plants, like just in their records from all over the world. So yeah, they have a lot of plants in their in their database and um if i find a species on africanplants.com i actually have it all laid out where i'll copy and paste a bunch of species over in a notes tab and then i'll copy and paste those species just go down the list and that website and that website's a lot more thorough with the the native range maps on it i trust a little bit more i guess because they color coordinate it where it's like if it's native to this range, I think it's green. And then they also have one for if it's invasive. I don't think they call it invasive. I don't remember what it was, um, but you'll see at the bottom. And then there's one for like, if they don't know if it's native to that area, because um, sometimes it may have been introduced mm-hmm. and they don't know. Um, so that one's a lot more easy to find or it's easier to find plant of certain regions on that website. So those are the two I, I use the most. Um, it's kind of a process. Like I'll get ready to do like an hour of research, honestly, just kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I figured, I figured there would be a, there would be a method to it because I know that for myself, even, even working with, um, you know, mostly, uh, Central and South American species that where there's there there are a lot more um, cultivated house plants at least in North America for those species than African species. Mm-hmm. Um, even then, it still can often be difficult to figure out like what's actually growing in what region, and um, you know, and obviously it's like the extent to which one wants to to geek out and actually really refine knowing like okay, this is native to this exact region and all of that may or may not be necessary, yeah. but I like to do that just because it's, it's fun for me and I enjoy the process. And it's a similar thing for me where it's like, I'm, I'm like geeking out on like multiple different websites, trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's native versus invasive or introduced or naturalized. And, and then what can I actually find? And, um, that can be a process too. Like you can find species that you're interested in or that are, that look like they'd be a good fit, but can you actually, can you buy that? Can you order seeds? That's a big killer. Yeah, <laughs> totally. The, uh, this is a bit of a sidebar, but um, 
I used to keep in, I used to keep a lot of uh, collared lizards, um, just different, you know, I just love the, that whole crotophytus is possibly the coolest North American lizard group of all time. But um, the, there's a, there's a, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, the trend it seems to be somewhat more popular in, in Europe. And, you know, I don't want to speak too broadly or too specifically, but the trend of being, you know, liking locality specific stuff feels sort of akin to that. And, and I, I had more than one European ask me to send them plants <laughs> or like try to send them plants. And I'm like, no, dude, I'm not, like, I, 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 I'm sure that's not legal. No, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and rocks too. I've had them ask, uh, request. Wow. Re- yeah. They've requested that I collect stones and then they, I'll pay, I'll pay for it. It's okay. I want my, my locality specific rock for my locality specific collared lizard. And, uh, I, I don't mean it. I'm not making fun of it at all. It's, it is really cool. It, it, um, um, I like the specificity and the level of, um, technique and planning and, uh, main maintenance that goes into that level of habitat replication. It's a remarkable amount of effort on your part. Mm-hmm. I didn't know people were, they want you to ship them rocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can understand it, I guess, but I don't know. Dang. I, I mean, I, that's, I, right there. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't go that far, but I definitely have taken home bags of like decomposing granite from Southern California. I've just brought whole bags with me when I've collected Baja collared lizards. I've just been like, nope, taking this. And I go through security with it and they've had to like open up my bag and like swab it to make sure it wasn't like, you know, explosive material. And they're like, why are you bringing a bunch of sand back from wherever? And I was like, uh, it looks nice. I don't know. <laughs> so i get it you don't want you don't want to tell tsa that you're a lizard nerd no lizard. <laughs> no dude oh uh, <laughs> i just i feel like if there's anything that's going to raise suspicion on me with tsa is if i mention anything that has to do with reptiles drugs <laughs> you know what i mean you just any of those things and tsa is going to be like let's uh let's take a look make a cavity search you know <laughs> <laughs> I had an interaction with a with actually a police officer earlier today in my reptile zone because right now my reptiles are all at a friend's house and um so I showed up today to to come do my rounds and I'm actually still here right now obviously because all the reptiles are behind me but um mm-hmm. I have a key so I go and I unlock and I go and I start tending to all my reptiles I got my headphones in I'm listening to a podcast and then um I'm out in the front yard like scrubbing water bowls and like hosing them off and this cop like is kind of looking at me like i see him he's he's like walking up to me and he's like he's like what are you doing you live here (laughs) and i'm like no it was my friend's house and he's like oh okay well um did you did you just come in that door over there and i was like i was like yeah i have a key and he's like you set off the alarm (laughs) oh no (laughs) And, I, and my friend, she she had left last night, and she forgot to disarm the alarm. And I I didn't know that the I didn't even know the alarm was going off because I had headphones. Oh <laughs> man! Oh no! <laughs> so 
it was a bit of a, a, a I was sitting there thinking I was like that could have actually been kind of sketchy if like this yeah. cop shows up and like thinks I'm a burglar but could have been bad fine. he was like he's like oh this guy's just a geek he's like cleaning reptile water bowls in the <laughs> yard he's definitely dude. harmless <laughs> dude there's a uh the so in my shop as you guys can imagine uh it's Euromastics right so the ambient temperature is through the roof uh, during, during the daytime in July and August in Colorado, it's hot as shit here. And, um, what I do, cause I don't want to turn on the swamp cooler cause that costs money. Um, the, uh, I, all I do is I open the front and the back doors to the shop. And then in the front door, I have a big, uh, where, you know, like a big industrial fan and, you know, I pull air through it. So that way it's just got great ventilation and it keeps the temp pretty reasonable you know but i always scare the hell out of myself because i it's a business there's it's i'm one of several units in this space and ups will come by and they like they like just no shame just like walk right in and look around and it scares the hell out of me you know because i'm just like ah like i didn't (laughs) i didn't know that anybody was coming into my shop and it freaks me out because i'm just like waiting for it to be some Mm. Creep, creepy reptile person who found my place accidentally or something like that you know it's like <laughs> we're gonna find you phil oh no <laughs> no <laughs> yeah yeah totally um but anyway a little diversion well back to getting on the topic of what um what connor's doing i'm curious connor if you want to um share what species you're working with right now and then maybe yeah. we can get a little bit into those. Yeah, so I keep three different species. I only have six reptiles, and I'm trying to keep it like at a small number. I'm really trying, I'm, like holding on to it. But it's really difficult. Um, <laughs> <laughs> probably the most notable is like the Jackson eyes, the Thrasops Jackson eyes. I have a pair of those. Um, not too long ago. I don't know exactly how long ago, maybe like six months ago, maybe less. I don't know. Um, I got Vimbriatus, Europlatus Vimbriatus, and I now have two of those. Um, And they're both still pretty young. I don't know exactly what their genders are. I'm thinking they're both females, but Mm. I'm not. These are like the first geckos I've ever had in my life. I'm also just kind of dipping my toes into lizards. So. Really not a pro at that. Um, and then pretty recently, I haven't really showed these guys yet, but um, a buddy of mine got me into them and they're pretty cool. They're Momophis. Um, they're either Asultus or Mophilensis, I think is how you pronounce it. And it's kind of hard to tell how to differentiate them. It's pretty much just scalation and then like where they're found. So the Asaltis are in northwestern Madagascar, and then the Mophilensis are kind of like central to southwestern Madagascar. Mm. But um, so those are the, the they call them big-eyed snakes. Sometimes is that what they call them? Yeah. Yeah. Sick. Cool species. Yeah. <laughs> so these are all pretty. Um, I mean, these are not. These are obviously like not the most common species in in herpetoculture. I mean, particularly the Momophis. So I think that the vast majority of folks listening to that are going to have no idea what that is. I had no idea what that was until a few. I don't know. What, I don't know what that is at all. 
Yeah, exactly. Just, <laughs> totally. I, I, I didn't know. And um, like I said, until a few weeks ago, I think our, our mutual friend probably. Um, and, um, but yeah, I'm curious. Um, yeah. Like what it's clear from hearing those. Okay. The first thing that comes to mind for me is like, okay, there's, you have a regional focus there. You know, it seems like, you know, you're kind of keeping species that are Afro, Afro-tropical, um, Malagasy species. Um, so I'm curious if like, is are you particularly drawn to that region? Like, do you have kind of like um, an intention of focusing specifically on that region with your herpetoculture projects? Or is that just like kind of how it's happened up to this point? Yeah, no, I'm kind of focusing on that region. I wasn't, I didn't start like that. Like I did want a lot of speeches. Like, I think I remember talking to you a while ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not long ago, like a few months. And I wanted more, I wanted to like keep some niche species just here and there. Um, like some neotropical vine snakes, which I still mm-hmm. think are so cool. But I don't know. I think I'm going to try to just keep my focus on Afrotropical Malagasy, like you said, mm-hmm. for now. There's so much out there. So it's kind of, it's easier to just narrow down the list by like where it's native. Plus, you know, as you look into those regions, you get more knowledgeable on them. So it's kind of nice, like, knowing mm-hmm. a little bit more going into it, I guess, than other regions, which I don't know as much about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that as beneficial, too, because it's, like, I definitely have a pretty broad diversity in terms of geography with the species I keep, but I do have one area of focus that I keep several species from is that Guyana shield region. And part of the reason for that is just that there's like a lot of redundancy that's actually helpful in keeping them and maintaining them because like the same plants, you know, I can have in all these vivariums so I can like seed a new vivarium with cuttings from another vivarium really easily. And Mm. um, another nice thing about it that I really like is that like, like I maintain, like I have a Guyana shield room basically. And it's just like, I'm maintaining that room for that region. And so it makes, um, it makes setting like the ambient parameters for like heat and humidity really simple. Cause I'm basically just managing the room instead of, you know, these individual vivariums where mm. I think when I was like younger, it, I found that challenging cause I had, I had, you know, species from the Amazon and species from like the southwestern United States, like one vivarium <laughs> apart from one another, yeah. you know, literally, you no know, way. And like keeping them simultaneously. And, and I, you know, kept them and kept them alive. But in hindsight, I'm like, neither of those were actually being kept to optimal conditions because of like simply because of their proximity to one another and how disparate their needs are. Totally. Um, it's, it's also, it, yeah, that's what I was going to sort of harp on was the difficulty in maintaining stuff that's from such disparate parts of the globe. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I tried forever to keep the anoles at the shop and there was just, it was totally irrational of me. I mean, there was just no reason to, to subject the anoles to that temperature or the euros that shared the same room with the same humidity. It just didn't make any sense. It's like, why bother? There's much, just split them up altogether, you know, different place, different room, at best, uh, or I mean, at worst rather, and, and different building altogether if possible, you know? Um, and you know, there, there's set, there's definitely something to be said about trying to like, you know, uh, streamline 
the the way that you're maintaining your whole collection because then you can move things up and down if they're all from a similar environment you can sort of move things up and down uh on the room level rather than on the individual cage level um anyway yeah yeah that's actually a big reason why i keep the species i do like i would love to move into some other more arid species like i really like platysaurs i post them a lot every time someone posts amazing a wild picture yeah rock on (laughs) yeah i know that philip keeps uh gama yeah buddy but it would just it would suck that he like i already i live in texas and right now it's like 110 every day it's horrible Mm -hmm. and um it's like a challenge to kind of maintain those cooler temperatures and actually in hindsight if I had the experience that I do now starting over, I probably should have went with like arid species. Mm-hmm. But now that I've already chosen one route, it's like, mm-hmm. I can't do the other route. <laughs> you're, you're so, stuck, dude. There's, you're stuck. Yeah. No, no change <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah. yeah so. I think that that's so interesting though. Like that's something I think about a lot. Like, like if I knew then what I know now, you know, like, <laughs> um, as it relates to herpetoculture, because I kind of had that experience, you know, like the, you know, I've shared my story extensively in the past on other podcasts and stuff, but I had like this 10 year hiatus. So I had a reset. I got to press the reset button. Of course, mm-hmm. it's not the same because like when I left, I was basically still a child and I came back and I told, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so, but I was a pretty experienced child when it comes to herpetoculture. Um, but, um, I think about that a lot. Yeah. Just like what you could do differently. And I was, I was just thinking about this the other day, like as it relates to like specializing in certain species or keeping more diversity Mm -hmm. and um, like, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm like torn on that all the time because part of me, the love that I have for herpetoculture, a lot of it has to do with just like loving how, um, species express their like ecologies and their and their Mm. their interesting different behaviors and like like i love the how the different morphology like the body shape of a species suggests how and where it lives Mm -hmm. and you know so it's like i have the i have the amazon puffing snakes where they show these massive lanky fast moving colubrids and then i have tricolor hognose snakes which are like the absolute opposite <laughs> you know? yeah yeah, Short, yeah. Fat, <laughs> stubby little things with upturned noses that live underground and um <laughs> you know and i've got i've got yeah. um i've got the polycrust you know these these tree dwelling canopy lizards and then i have the um the xenosaurus which are crevice dwellers and part of the reason why I, I was drawn to the, the Xenosaurus was because they're crevice dwellers. I can't explain why, and I think that's yeah. cool, but I, I really think that's so cool. <laughs> you know, similar to Platysaurus, you know, similar yeah. thing. Well, um, and th- there's also, ahead, sorry, uh, there's also something about, um, I think that when you're interested in something as, you know, a topic as broad as herpeticulture or just keeping anything any animal whatsoever to the extent that uh, fellows like yourself uh, keep stuff, you're constantly working this balance between 
knowing that the amount of time you spend with a particular animal type is going to directly relate to how well you do with them, right? So there's this correlation between your experience and the level of care you're providing for the animals. But then there's also this other sort of descending curve, which is sort of your interest and the the newness and the interest and the intrigue that comes with something relatively new. But the longer you work with it, you get things get a little bit more routine. And I don't mean bad. I don't mean burnout by any stretch of the imagination, but it's like there is something about that balance. And, and, you know, so I struggle with that. It's like I know that, you know, to get as good as I want to get with Euromastics, I need 35 plus more years under my belt doing it because that's the only way I'm going to, you could spend a lifetime working with one damn type of animal, you know, and, you know, learning as much as you can, and you're never going to get to the end. There's no end point to the road, but at the same time, you're interested in all these other things, all these other, you know, whether it be different environments, different, uh, just different styles of being in the world as an organism. Right. And it's, you know, I'm also intrigued, but it's like, I have these damn euros and xenogama and chuckwallas, but damned if I don't want polycris, you know, like I just, <laughs> I just do. And, and until, until there's more space, more time, more money, uh, it, it, the balance of, of, um, what you want and what you can do, what you should do. There's a lot of, it really is. It's like a, a multi, multi-sided scale for, for herpeticulturists. We're having to balance so many different factors, uh, not, not even to mention welfare and, and just long-term well-being and what kind of example you're setting for the future. And um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I, <laughs> I'm taking us totally off on tangents and I know we're all for that, but I... <laughs> no, no. I think that this is super relevant. I mean, I, it's also like, so, so one question I have on this particular piece too, is that like, how much does one's, you know, keeping of one species, how much of that can be benefited by keeping other things that kind of break open your mind, you know, like they, 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 they give you a different angle at something. And then mm. maybe that angle you can then apply to the species that you're working with. And it actually improves your husbandry. I think that there is, I think that like, like it's very common to like talk about herpetoculture as like generalist versus specialist. But I think that in some ways it's almost like helpful to have that kind of generalist beginning, which I think so many of us do, you know, we have that beginning where we're kind of like, we want, we, we want everything. We're trying all these different species. And I think most of us do that, but I think a part of that that's, that's good about that is that you're, you're, you're just like getting a very broad understanding of behavior, like just reptile behavior Mm -hmm. and um, reptile care as it applies to different things. And, um, and some like a a behavior that is subtly expressed in one species might be more overtly expressed in another species, but it's the same behavior. It's just like expressing on different ends of the spectrum, you know, and, um, so I think in some ways it can be helpful to start out in that way and then move towards specialization later on, once you have more experience and you kind of have a broader understanding of what to look for in certain things. But I don't know. I just think this is a really interesting, Me too. interesting thing to think about. Yeah. But, um, but getting back to like what you're, what you're keeping Connor, um, I mean, you mentioned the thrasops as being kind of like a, you know, a kind of flagship species for you. Um, and I'm curious, like, what brought you to them? Like, why 
why that species. Um, and, you know, I also feel like, you know, one thing that's often talked about with that species is they're, you know, potentially um, medically significant, you know, rear fang snake that can, can really pack a wallop. So I'm curious about like how you found yourself working with that species. Were you intimidated, you know, wading into that? Were you, were you, um, too brash and now you're kind of like maybe i should have been more cautious like what was the what was the um, arc of that uh, i look back on it and i just think of how ignorant i was i it was definitely the rash side of things like i didn't really <laughs> i had seen that um the francis fight report um where it's like not a good bite and i mm-hmm. i don't know why that just didn't correlate in my mind that like this animal was the one that was capable of doing that. But I remember when I first unboxed the first mail that I got, I just like went in freehand and I like picked this thing up with my hand. And I got really lucky because like my female, she's a lot more fidgety and she's not afraid to bite you. The male is a lot more laid back. Like he's very curious and everything. Um, but he's just not as prone to, or he's not as, interested in fighting i guess he's more flighty um or he was at that point um so i got i mean i'm pretty lucky that i didn't get bit starting out like it's kind of mm-hmm. embarrassing but this yeah. <laughs> that's awesome it's okay i mean we all we all have our journey with that i, I um i've i've free handled some more medically significant species than that in my youth <laughs> so, <laughs> i'm not one to judge um yeah i'm definitely a lot more cautious of it now like when i i don't mess with them very much but when i do have to move them i'm like doubled up with jackets i've got my hook out i've got these thick leather gloves that have a long um i guess sleeve i don't know and then i put the jacket over it um yeah i'm pretty i don't want to get bit what's the uh, first again, for, so for someone who like, and my, like myself, who's, um, not as familiar with these, this, with these snakes, can you tell me a little bit about, um, like just a little bit about their, their sort of general attitude, you know, how they tend to behave and, and, um, like what's their max size? How, how what are we, what are we talking about here? Uh, a little, a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. So like a minute ago, you're all kind of talking about how until you keep something, you don't really know what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. That was definitely me with Grasshops. Like, I just remember going off everything that I could on Facebook. And that led me to putting them in enclosures that I now think are like pretty small. Like they're not great. Um, like I keep them right now. They're both separately living in four by two by fours. And it's still like, that's a decent enclosure, I'd say. But mm-hmm. for how active they are and just their length, they're very fast paced too. So definitely too small um which i'm slowly moving forward larger enclosures um but they're yeah like i didn't really fully comprehend and expect them to be the way that they are um i kind of knew they were going to be a little more intelligent which i i agree with still they're 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 very observant they're very sight oriented um it's, it's also kind of individual. Like I've talked to a couple of people and 
I don't know. They're, they're very different from one another. Like my male and my female are completely different. I, I'm, I'm sure that's with all species though. Like my male, he's, he's never really tried to strike at me. Well, actually, I mean like when he's in mode and through the glass, yeah, he's trying to strike at me, but, um, he's, he's pretty laid back or he's a pretty laid back individual. The female though, she's pretty out there. Like she's not afraid to come up to you and bite you. She's, the complete opposite of the male. Um, when I how, first got them, what was that? How how what's their max size? Like how large are the individuals that you have? There's so I mean most individuals I want to say get like in between five and six feet. The ones I have are roughly like five and a half feet. I've never measured them, mm-hmm. but I've seen pictures of like seven and a half feet almost maybe pushing eight feet. I don't know if those individuals were actually measured, but they're big. Um, although most of the ones that are in captivity, they don't seem to be that large. I think those are kind of, you know, specific cases or specific individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but Are the males larger than the females or the opposite? Is there any difference? I think it's pretty much equal. Honestly, I would say the females might maybe just be like a tad bit bigger mm. um but honestly some people might disagree with me on that so they uh to me they look like a like a straight up mix between like a coach whip and a boom, boom slang they t- oh yeah <laughs> like like I visual mean, just visually yeah yeah no they do and they've made me they've made me more like interested in other species that i wasn't even interested in like boom slangs i mean cool and everything but definitely definitely a little more interested in boom slang just because of keeping the drop up since they're so close yeah closer are they um, are they like per, um like like in terms of movement and body language do they resemble something like a coach whip or a boom slang in in the the quickness and sharpness to their movement like they're quite snap like um, I'm, 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 hopefully this makes, makes like some sense. Twitch. Yeah. Very fast twitch, very quick, speedy animals that, you know, could just like shoot off at a lightning pace, you know, given the opportunity or they, or are they more, uh, measured cautious? Um, I know that there's maybe like a line where personality, individual personality makes a difference here, but sort of, I guess I just mean generally speaking, you know? Yeah. Generally speaking, they're, they're pretty fast. Like okay. I think I said before, they're, they're I call them fast-paced living. Like the mimosas that I have, they're pretty slow. Like they'll just sit in one area for thirty minutes, move to another part of the enclosure. You know, they're diurnal and they're arboreal, and they kind of have some of the some similarities. But the thrasops, like when they're out and about, they're just moving back and forth. So that's why I don't like the enclosure sizes. Like. They just make their rounds all day. So mm-hmm. uh, they're pretty active. And I, there are definitely times when I've made the conscious decision, I'm not going to open the enclosure right now because I can't guarantee that the snake won't just like jump right out. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, man. specific circumstances, like, I don't know, maybe he just kind of was riled up at that, at that point in time, or definitely when food is involved, they're, very food motivated. Mm. Um, but yeah. Have you, have you had them long enough to notice sort of like the, se- you know, seasonal changes in their activity? 
you know, I wish I could say that I've done a lot of seasonal variation for them, but I really haven't. Like mm. during winter, you know, I make the thermostat a little cooler, um, but I haven't been trying to breed them yet. Mm-hmm. And so that's one reason why I haven't. And I don't know, honestly, it's just me being probably a little more lazy than I <laughs> Is it so? Is it so? You you would describe it as just being just waiting. You're just sort of procrastinating a little bit, but it's not. It's not. You're not waiting to breed them because uh, they're not quite where you want them to be, or is it? Or is it something quite like that? Yeah. So I'm actually I'm gonna be moving. Mm. I don't know exactly when. So that's kind of the reason I would hate to be in the process of moving and have like a of these eggs that yeah. I would care about a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so originally I was just kind of waiting until they were both at a point where I could tong feed easily. And, you know, they were used to me to an extent so that co-having them would be a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'm kind of at a point where I'm just waiting until pretty much I move and I'm at a better position to actually breathe them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what were you said um waiting to a point where cohabiting might be easier what are what are the challenges in cohabitation with them as it stands they, it's mostly food motivation okay. and they're they seem to be pretty pretty easy to get breeding like the males from what i've heard kind of go after the females and even seasonal variation sometimes doesn't switch them off mm-hmm. So it's been a challenge for some people I know, but then there's also people that like 20 years ago were just starting out and they were keeping them in pretty small enclosures, like smaller than what I have mine in. And they had multiple in one enclosure and maybe like, maybe they had more females. So that kind of evened it out. I don't really know, but um, I don't know. I I think housing a pair because I haven't tried it, but I think housing them together would be pretty challenging in the size of enclosure. And then just because they seem to be pretty easy to get going. Um, yeah. I do plan on trying cause I, I have a, I want to do a pretty big enclosure. It's in my head. It's like eight foot long. Nice. And so, yeah. So I'm going to try co-having then. And I'm going to implement a lot more like seasonal variation. I might even, I've kind of thought about it. I might have to go a little more extreme, like maybe making it where their lights, because in the wild, their lights, the lighting almost never changes like 12 hours hours off most of the year round. Um, I might have to make it where like the lights for an hour or two are off at one part of the year. Um, I'm not really sure. I'm going to kind of experiment with it and see if it's possible in that enclosure. But if I feel like they're going to have to be separated, you know, at the end of the day, I'll I'll kind of have to do that. So uh, what is, what does it look like? So um, coming from myself, um, I'm a pretty staunch solo housing advocate for most reptiles. I mean, just generally speaking, I mean, I keep a few Xenogama together and uh, a couple of the Cacrix, um, Yucatan spiny tailed iguanas that I've got are housed together, but uh, I'm used to thinking about the, the, the ways in which the things I have to look out for with lizards and keeping lizards together, because 
Yeah, with Euromastics. Yeah, sure. You get all the different um, sort of sort of uh, body language stuff and 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 edging that goes almost below conscious awareness for people. And then you get the literal stuff, which is just straight up attacks from one animal to mm-hmm. another, biting of toes and tail, biting of sides, uh, chasing, you know, sort of challenging for space and dominance, posturing, stuff like this. But what does that look like for these snakes? You know, I I, I have no... I have no sense of what that looks like in, in, in that context. I think, I think Roy would obviously know more about this than I would, but (laughs) like, it's kind of weird because, you know, starting off, I kind of had the same, I had like a mindset of it's probably just better off to keep everything alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had ball pythons and I was listening to those head tubers, as I was saying before, that they kind of just one way, like that's how you do things. You keep them alone. And I don't necessarily disagree with that with a lot of species. Like Euromastics, I know I've heard you say in the past, most of the time, it's not a good idea, right? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I so, mean, it, it, and it's and and it's something I've been trying to revise a little bit more lately because I don't mean a hundred percent of the year. Like I'm not trying to keep these animals in solitary confinement. You know what I mean? It's that's not what I'm talking. Like like Roy has mentioned on previous podcasts, we've talked about boredom in captive reptiles, you know. So I'm not I'm not by any means trying to keep my animals totally bored and deprived, but there's like I just quite yesterday yesterday or today I posted a video of two of my Euromastics Yemenensis fighting. And it's like the second day and and you think you know, with most reptile, or at least with a lot of lizards, you can put two new lizards together and you'll see an instantaneous reaction from the other two. It's whether it's posturing mm-hmm. or running or something, just, there's just an instant reaction. Like, Whoa, there's another dude here. I need to be careful. You know, maybe, you know, because they don't know if it's going to attack them or what it's, it's a totally sane response from a captive reptile. Right. But, um, uh, you know, there's, there's some of like the initial stuff where it's like, the first day or the first, you know, few days, there's some bickering or some weirdness. So, you know, it depends a little bit on how, you know, um, how familiar one animal may or may not be with the space in which you've introduced them to one another. Is it neutral ground? Was it the male's territory? Was it the female's territory? You know, who's uncomfortable, who's more skittish by nature? You know, there's so many factors, right? And, um, but with euros, it, it, yeah, sometimes it settles down, but inevitably there's always one edging the other more towards a higher stress baseline. Right. And that's, that's something that, that I get concerned about. And I feel like it gives me like a visceral feeling. Like I can feel it in my being in a weird way that I don't know how to explain when I hear scuffling going on between animals, or I hear chasing, I hear the, the frantic run of a lizard that can't get away from another lizard. It makes me very, very uncomfortable. And I don't know, I I guess sort of what I'm trying to get, get at here is, is I don't know what the behavior looks like in, Mm -hmm. in your snakes that would make you say, okay, I need to split them up now. Something's not working. Something is clearly not quite right. It's making me uncomfortable as the keeper. What does that look like in these, in these snakes specifically, uh, if, if you can yeah. elaborate? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've never kept them together. So I oh, okay. can only speculate what I would be seeing, but I, I kind of imagine most likely the female will be showing signs of like, Okay, I want to get out of here. Um, mm-hmm. you know, 
know, probably wanting to read. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of what I expect to see, but I, I've never that's, done that's, it. But sure. That's kind sure. of what I would expect too. I think, I mean, that's kind of what I, that's what I, what I experienced with the tricolors. So maybe Phil, when you, you, ha- you kept tricolor hognose at one point mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. So did you have the experience of like the males are just very amorous mm-hmm. snakes? And they, I think that they'll pretty much just like my experience is I put the male in, he's immediately chasing the female according yeah. to her. And he doesn't really, he doesn't stop until no. I separate until yeah. I separate them. And so I think that like for that's more of a signal that I, the, the, at least that I tend to think about with um, colubrid snakes in particular, and I'm sure it applies to other snakes, although I don't really keep a lot of other um, families of snakes. Um, but there are also other subtle signs. It's like, it's so different because with lizards, you know, you, yeah, you're like you said, you'll see posturing almost mm-hmm. right away and lizards, um, you know, they're, they're often more expressive in their posturing and their social behaviors and stuff like that with the they have arms and legs. Yeah. They have arms <laughs> and legs and they just have a different communication style, right? They have more yeah. visual communication than snakes. I think snakes have more subtle communication mm-hmm. a lot of the times. Um, but like with like the Spilotes that I keep together, um, year round, I, um, I noticed that they're like, they're, they're, they're good with each other. Most of the time, if they're annoyed with each other, usually the way that it's expressed is like one snake is climbing over the other snake and that snake's doing the, like, like, uh, get off me. Hey, like hey. a little, yeah. like little nudge, you know, like, mm-hmm. but that's the extent of the irritation that I see from them. I don't see them biting each other or anything like that. I have, I have observed that once. Um, when I very early on, when I was keeping the Spilotes, I first got back into the hobby. Um, and I, I got this snake back that I had hatched, you know, 10 mm-hmm. years earlier as a teenager, um, with him came his, his mate. Um, and they had been kept separately most of the time. And the person who had them before me just had said like, yeah, I haven't been able to breed them. I don't, I don't really know why. Um, mm-hmm but I've, I've given it a go and I think it's time for somebody else to have a crack at this project. And so, um, I had them separately and I put them together and there was an immediate reaction. And my Mm. big male, the one I had hatched was chasing this other snake and biting the tail. And, um, you know, I was looking at it and I was like, this doesn't really look like courtship to me. Mm -mm. This looks kind of like, this looks, this looks like, um ritualized combat because they were also doing the they started doing the arm wrestling Sick. thing which was amazing to see yeah at that point i had never heard of spilotes doing that or at least not sulfurious i had seen a paper written about pilatus doing that mm-hmm. but never about sulfurious and um turned out that i had two boys <laughs> <laughs> And so they, that's, that's why they hadn't been breeding, but it was only once they were in my care that they did that, um, that, that, that this reaction happened and the whole ritualized combat thing happened. And it was really interesting to observe, but, um, yeah, it's so different with, with snakes. I think that, um, you know, the other big thing that a lot of people are worried about is just cannibalism with snakes, right? Oh yeah, sure. Sure. Of course. This stuff is like, 
not relevant at all because there are certain species that you can't like it's a risk to put them together at all. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying yeah. to breed them, it's like, oh, here, who's going to get eaten? Better be careful. <laughs> yeah, and even even the spilotes, you know, people have been. Are you sure they're not going to eat each other? And you know, and I have the lizards in there with them, you know, and they they don't eat the lizards. But um, anyway, it's it, it's complicated. It, it is, and it's and it's weird because at least with lizards, anyway, with the euros, and even with the xenogama. You know, like it's just so obvious it, to me anyway, I feel like it's really, really obvious when if you've got two animals together and one is doing great and the other is doing OK, just fucking split them, man. Like it's just it's just so obvious that the one doesn't want to be with the other. And, you know, it feels like people ignore that, you know, um, they yeah. really do. And and the number of times I have to tell or I suggest to people anyway they'll say oh what's going on you know with my animal you know these things aren't working together you know this one's doing great but the other's not i'm like well are you making them share the same space oh well yeah but it's like no no there's no but just just Mm -hmm. stop just split them up man and if you just split them up and give them a moment i mean most of the time the one that was doing not so great usually rebounds pretty hard you know Mm -hmm. and can sometimes bounce back to doing better than what it was before that just happened with my, the Tinocera or the Cacrix defensor mm-hmm. pair that I've got. They, um, the, the, the male was just hounding the female over and over, just, mm-hmm. just beating her up, brutalizing her really. Mm-hmm. The second I split him up, appetite shot up for her and went down for him, you know, <laughs> like it's, he, you know, and, and he's doing fine now, but it was this huge disruption to their stuff, but it was obvious from looking at the female that it was not okay. You didn't want that going on because, you know, unless they're in prime shape, clearly something's not right. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So on the subject of like lizards versus snakes, um, you mentioned you're, you're like kind of, this is a new foray for you to start kind of moving into lizard keeping. Um, and a pretty interesting jump too into a species that you don't you don't see so often in her culture and one I really like. So I'm curious, like what precipitated that that jump, that interest? Like how did that how did that start? I don't know what initiated it. I just thought they looked cool, honestly, and their range <laughs> was appealing to me. I don't know. That's kind of how it goes. Like if their range is appealing to me, mm-hmm. which is normally like Central Africa or a lot of the times it's Eastern Madagascar, but then again, I just got like the Western side of the Momophis. Um, I don't know. And I was actually about to say, cause I've, I now cohab them and they display like a lot of interesting behaviors. I have a little interesting camera on them. Um, and kind of like what Phil was saying when I first introduced them, you know, they were, pretty unsure of each other they were like constantly on the opposite side of the enclosure um and the way that they kind of communicate through each other to each other I don't know exactly like I'm pretty new to it so I I can't say like oh this this specific behavior means that this gecko is mad at the other one or something I don't I can't say that I know that I do know I haven't seen any like fights or what I would consider aggression towards one um but they like they kind of wiggle their tail honestly that's 
best way to describe it, they just wiggle their tail. Um, and I've noticed like different positions that they'll wiggle it, but I don't know what that means or if that's just, it doesn't even matter. They're just wiggling their tail and that's just how it is. Um, so yeah, like at first they were, for the first few nights, they would be completely on the opposite sides of the enclosure entire night. I would normally come back, you know, the following morning and they'd still be on that side sleeping on the opposite sides. And now they're pretty used to each other. Like I'll find them right next to each other. I've even found them kind of like overlapping because they sleep on the walls or on wood and they'll just kind of, their bodies will be overlapping sometimes. So I cool. pretty, they're okay with each other, I guess. And they're both pretty young. Um, and I also kind of said before, I think they're both females. So that probably helps too, that I don't have like rivaling males or anything. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah. And like I said, they're the first gecko I've had and kind of getting back into the, the whole lizard world. Like the last lizards I had, if I'm not mistaken, I had emerald skinks like two nice. years ago. They were awesome. Like I love those little guys. Um, that was quite a while ago and I haven't really touched back with it for a while. So I'm definitely not as confident in saying anything about the Europlatus. Like I'm pretty new to them. I don't want to like, don't ask me for care advice or anything. <laughs> I'm figuring it out right now as I go. Um, well, there goes mean, my next five questions. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm figuring it out as I go. I mean, they're, they're both doing really good. They've actually grown a lot since I got them. Like they, their growth was almost kind of scary. Like I was thinking, am I like overfeeding them or something? Um, Cause I mean, their, their weight looked fine, but I don't know. They like within a couple months, there was already visible, like this is a bigger animal now. Mm -hmm. um, I talked to a couple people and I think, I think they're, that that's okay. You know, they are young lizards. But I'm sure they, they do grow fast in the wild, but I'm definitely not used to that. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I can relate to that as well because you know, for, for years, the whole thing with euros is euros are, they grow slow. They're like tortoises. And it's like, yeah, they don't grow as fast as like a leopard gecko or a bearded dragon will, if you feed them five times a day for a year. Right. <laughs> maybe they, maybe they don't go, they don't grow that fast, but I've got some, you know, one and two year old ornata that are pretty substantial animals, you know, like very, they grow when, when they're well, and it's, and it's now happening across all the different species. Whereas, you know, for the first several years when I was producing Euromastix, there were some that would take, you know, there'd be uh, big disparities in individual clutches where there'd be an animal that takes off and is, is near adult size in three years. And then some that for, for two years stayed relatively small and then shot into huge growth spurts and things like this. And now, uh, over the last three years in particular, I'm starting to get a much more even growth rate out of everything. Like every species is growing more to a specific tune where within six months to a year, they're already mostly sexable, starting to gain some color, um, sort of all attaining a similar body, uh, you know, just like a physique. There's a specific physique that's coming up. And so I'm starting to feel like maybe I'm getting more on the right track because there's less disparity between individuals. Um, yeah. There's still some there, but it's just not as, as dramatic as it used to be. You know, there used to be some where 
I'd have one that I raised myself and one that I sent to a customer who did great, right? It doesn't, it's not like this customer wasn't housing their animals correctly. They were doing a wonderful job, but you know, the one would be three years old and the size of some of my yearlings. And then the one that I kept would be near adult size. And then within the next two years, that smaller one would catch up and sort of, you know, hit these huge growth spurts. So I relate to what you're saying about that worry that maybe, you know, so, so many people think, oh, is he not growing fast enough? But then there's the opposite end. It's like, is this thing growing too fast, gaining too much weight too quickly, which is also kind of a concern, you know? So that's a great thing to be keeping an eye on. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Do you you think like the, was there anything you attribute attributed to now that you're looking back? Like, I think it's this thing that's making them all kind of have an even growth rate or is it just. Yeah. That's an awesome question, man. So yeah, a a few things, right? So one is I think uh, comfort and, and just stability in their environment, right? The, the common denominator between the stuff that takes a long time to grow is the more it's been shipped, right? Mm. So I send an animal to a person who's, you know, getting one of their first euros and unless they have everything absolutely perfect and the trip there is easy for the animal and it doesn't sweat it, usually they take a little bit of a hit with growth, you know, at least some, at least for that first year, it just, there's this transitional period that is, is difficult for some Euromastics to make. Um, and then if you extend that out further to say animals that come from overseas, so if it's been imported, um, except with wild caught, I don't know what this is. This is a total weird phenomenon with wild caught imported Euromastics. They can come to my shop. I'll set them up the way I set them up and they just, bam, they rock it into, you know, they just, it's like they hit the ground running. They didn't miss a beat. Right. But then you get captive bred animals from Europe and the transition just throttles them and they're just not happy about it. They don't like what happened. They don't like the change. I, you know, I don't know what it is. Some of it seems to have to do with, with how quickly, right? So let's say I hatch a clutch of 10 or not a, and there's some that grow really fast and I ship them at two or three weeks, which I haven't really done this, but it, you know, there's somewhere I've delivered them at two or three weeks because there's local people, those animals don't seem to skip a beat at all. Like they're so young, they just can't afford to care that the environment changed, right? Because all the sort of physiological imperatives are telling them, get going, just bask, eat, grow, shit, do your thing. But then you get some where people hold their euros for a long time, like eight weeks plus after hatching. And the bigger they get, the more kind of instantiated they get in their environment. And the more used to that way of doing things that routine so the bigger the disruption the more it seems to throw uh kind of throw off their growth rates right or at least it can um there's also some stuff that seems to have to do with diet you know um it like you know i started doing this thing and this is probably not um it's probably not a huge factor in this in particular but you know I used to like chop up greens in a, in a big mixture to try to give the biggest variety of diet possible and say, let's get a huge variety of diet. We'll chop up this big pile of salad and it'll be real finely chopped and I'll put a pile of it in for the babies. Right. Well, that would present all kinds of other weird problems because you get a pile of baby lizards. They all come run into their salad. They start eating. And within 10 minutes, 50% of the animals have shit all over those greens and they're not eating them anymore. Right. Well, so 
a few years ago, what I started doing was taking whole strips of greens. So let's say like a whole strip of turnip or a whole strip of romaine or a whole strip of collard greens or whatever it might be. And it's this, you're just getting entire leaves of this plant and you put it in the enclosure and I pin it under a rock or I hang it from something and the animals pull from it. And now they're having to, you know, use much more ergonomical, um, feeding behaviors, right? Because they're having to act, it's just like they would be in the wild. They'd be grabbing, biting, and pulling back, grabbing, biting, and pulling back. And they're engaging and using their body in a more naturalistic way. And it does a few things. <clears throat> it's better ergonomics and better health for the animal, right? It's less waste because the animals aren't shitting on all that food. And then the others don't want to eat it when there's poop on it. So it's just goes to waste. And it makes cleanup easier because you're just pulling out, you know, the center stem on a piece of collard greens or turnip greens, you know, so you're just pulling it out and it's not that big of a deal. But, um, and I have noticed that cages where I'm doing that kind of feeding, as opposed to chopping the greens up and placing it, you know, sort of on a platform or something for, for the whole clutch, they eat more. They just seem to eat more, be, you know, they're just stronger. They grow a little bit faster, you know, it's probably, it might be nothing. But it also might be they're just better functioning, you know, because they're feeding in a more naturalistic way, something that's more normal and more the way you would have found them in nature. Um, but it's I don't want to overstate it either, because I, I haven't I haven't done like, you know, control trials of feeding styles and diet preferences and stuff like that. So I, I can't overstate it too much. But, yeah, I don't know. Those are some of the things that I've noticed, at least here. Um, but yeah <laughs> yeah that, that's an aspect of it like that foraging mm-hmm. kind of i bet that's probably a lot more mentally stimulating for them but it's probably i want to say it's, it's kind of getting them what's the word it's probably more they have to initiate more energy and yes work for it a little more i know like i'm not a bird person don't get me wrong but um parrots like i know parrots when you give them these like foraging opportunities they eat normally more and better you can even like trick them to eat things that you want them to eat because they worked for it so now it's like this is more valuable because i put work into getting it um whereas it's just it's there it's like they don't have to work at all i wonder if that's kind of I I could, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. I could definitely see that being a factor too, because there's this other thing I've noticed, which is, um, you know, uromastics, just like most reptiles are, they're pretty bright, you know, they, they know, they learn really, really quickly, you know, whether, you know, if you're the food monkey, as I've heard it, you know, uh, uh, you know, where you tend to place the food. And I've noticed that if, um, there's two things in particular, the first is that, um, Let's say I'm bringing around a, a turnip greens and I'm chopping up, you know, I'm pulling a few strands of turnip greens off of the leaf. And then I go to put, you know, I go to hang that leaf either in a specific place in, in the enclosure, or maybe I'm going to hand feed them and make them walk for it, right? Make them move around, get some exercise while they're feeding before I put it in a more permanent location in the cage. The animals will have a food response. And then if they come over and they, they see something that they weren't expecting or that they don't want, they will run over like they're excited. And then they'll look at it. And I'm just going to forget that this was here. They're like, eh, this isn't that interesting to me, you know, but then you, you can literally take there's food on the ground 
And then you can take that food and present it in a, or a different food rather, and put it in the same spot and they come rip it up. Right. So that helps reveal a food preference, which I, I try to pay attention to, you know, when I can, but the other thing is, as, as you were mentioning about parrots, Connor, or birds, Connor, uh, is that the euros will, um, they do seem to respond to having food put in different places around the enclosure, because if they can, if they recognize, they know when I'm going to feed them in, in, in this spot, because I just have, whether it's a dish or a platform, there's a place in the enclosure where I tend to say, this is where I'm going to feed you most of the time, because it, it gets, it helps me build a routine with the animal Mm -hmm. helps them learn to trust me. Because if I, if they just see me going for the same spot in the enclosure, every time, they don't think he's coming in to grab me or anything like that. And I have all open top enclosures. So this is something I have to consider. And I don't want them to be afraid of me at all. I want them to be totally at ease in their space, you know? And when you move around that food presentation and you put it in a different place or you put it somewhere where it's a little more complex for them to get to. Um, I have these, these um, Spanish roofing tiles that I use to construct sort of home rock piles out of right and there are times where the the edge of a rock you know maybe there's like a you know here's the flat ground of the enclosure and then there's a little bit of an edge in the rock where it it mm-hmm. lifts up and creates a bit of an overhang on a small scale mm-hmm. right and i will put high value treats underneath those rock parts or certain areas certain crevices and you can see them they you know they get in there and they They have to come up with a different way to get into the space and get what they want. And you can, as, as you were saying, Connor, you can put in a, a a piece of food that they're maybe not as interested in, but you put it in a challenging place and they're going to take it home. They're like, no, no, I'm getting that, which is so interesting. It's weird, right? It's, it's so bizarre that, that that's the way it goes sometimes. I guess, I mean, it kind of makes sense though. Like they had to work for it. So now it's valued higher. I would imagine. but yeah, it's gotta be right. I mean, it it makes, it certainly makes logical sense. And, um, I don't know. I feel like we're going to, I feel like I'm just going to try, I'm trying to pull us off on this other topic of like, uh, because it's something I'm so interested in right now, which is this, this idea that the foods that we you know, feed Euromastics or that the average person feeds Euromastics is just so rich super, super nutrient dense, rich foods. And it's got to contribute to some other health problems. It's so tangential. I'm I'm pulling us off in a weird direction, but kind of got me thinking about it. So, yeah. (laughs) It seems like a a common issue with a lot of reptile species. Mm -hmm. Overfeeding, feeding too much, too too nutrient dense of prey items. And Mm -hmm. What were you saying, Connor? Sorry, I kind of cut you off. I was going to say, um, I think I've heard you say, and I could totally be wrong. Didn't you say at some point um, that like tortoises and euros kind of have yeah a diet? You did. Okay. Mm-hmm. I remember that episode from Animals at Home podcast. It's not that old now. And it was talking about, what was that? It's a veterinarian. Yes. Yes. Uh, the, the vet out of Canada. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. What was her name? 
I don't remember her name I, off the top of my head. I feel terrible uh, because I, I loved that episode and I can't remember her name. But yeah, she was the a brilliant vet out of Canada, brilliant exotics vet. Yeah, I know the episode you're talking about. Yeah. But yeah, she was talking about like how the diet of tortoises and captivity is pretty bad. But I mean, yeah. it wouldn't been, like a lot of these people are probably trying and they they probably think that they're actually doing the right thing, you know, offering like all this variety and, mm-hmm. you know, but. yeah, no, totally. And um, it's kind of interesting too, because uh, when you feed more uh, natural foods, so like I've been pulling, um, I, you know, I have, a, there's a lot of great weeds here in Colorado where you can pull, you know, from out in open space or in my mom's backyard, I can pull all these wild foods that I can feed to the euros. And you can, you can tell, you know, when they, there's, when there's a solid two, three weeks of nothing but dandelions, they know what's up, you know, they're like, I'm going to eat every dandelion I can possibly find in the enclosure. So I'll go pick them by the thousands, you know, and scatter them just in a handful and just toss them all around the whole cage. I'll hide them, everything like this. And even if months have gone by and that dandelion is dry and desiccated at the bottom of underneath a stone, sometimes I'll be moving and cleaning enclosures and moving stones out of the way. And I'll lift a stone up and there'll be a dandelion under the stone and the euro will come over and just snag it. Like, yes, score. (laughs) I I knew I put that somewhere, you know? (laughs) Love it. It's great. That that, that was Dr. Chapman, by the way. Yes, that's right. I just looked it up. Yes. Chapman. Yeah. She was excellent to listen to such a, an yeah. awesome, awesome episode. Yeah. This also makes me think about like with, with snakes, like um, one thing I've noticed is that um, like with the Spilodes, for example, I think that in their native range, they do a lot of nest raiding behavior mm. um, because they, there's a lot of things that make me think this. One of the things that makes me think it is that, they um the the way that they eat is just it's just weird they 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 just grab whatever the prey item is and they just swallow it <laughs> as quickly as possible it doesn't matter if it's alive and kicking as it's going down their gullet like they don't care they just grab it and swallow it and i think that 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 you know would be a serious liability if you're grabbing something like a rat or, mm. you know, something, something that can defend itself because it can mess you up. But if you're, if you're preying on relatively defenseless nestling birds or nestling rodents of, or nestling, um, tree opossums, you know, things like that in South America, um, that, that makes sense to have that kind of feeding strategy. But, um, one thing I've noticed is that it, it can really help to get the, the wild caught, um, one's feeding because often they can be reluctant feeders but I'll, I'll i'll put in like a one of those big monkey pods those those seed pods as mm. like a faux nest and i'll put in the prey items in that and then i'll put that somewhere in the branches and over you know that that actually has helped to encourage a few of them to start feeding because it's like a faux nest you know and cool. i'll put in i've even put in you know pigeon eggs or dove eggs in there and they'll they love those they just gobble them up but then also it's helped me what, what made me when it come to mind is that um, if I can figure out something that they'll eat out of that pod, 
anything that goes in that pod is now fair game. So even if it's something that like I've offered on tongs before and they don't want, I can put it in there and they'll, they'll eat it because they, they just now associate that as like, that's a nest where I get food, you know, and I'll move it around the enclosure. But it's one, one of the things that's helped me to kind of diversify their diet because um, very often, again, especially I've only had this issue with the wild caught ones, but um, it can be a struggle to get them beating. And, you know, I feel like the worst thing you can do with a snake is, is force feed it, you know, like, and so I'm always like, okay, my, my job is to find out what is the thing that it wants to eat because there's something that it will eat on its own without being, you know, without teasing it Mm -hmm. with it, you know, what's the thing. Once I can figure out what that thing is, I can use that <laughs> to trick it into eating other things. And then, mm-hmm. and then I can start feeding it easier to obtain items. And, um, you know, and sometimes it's like been a songbird, uh, you know, a songbird that I've, that I've found, you know, hit by a car or something to get them started, <laughs> which sounds crazy to do, <laughs> but it's like, if, if, if they'll eat that on their own, I think that's way better than like giving it something force fed and it's totally stressing the snake out, you know, and you, you said, you said pigeon and dove eggs. So yeah. I now have this image of you, uh, raiding the nest of local pigeons and doves to get their eggs. Is that how you did that? Or did you buy them? Isn't. I bought them. Yeah. I found a couple different places where I can buy them and just have them shipped online. Oh, hot damn. Okay. And it's just like a supplemental thing that I do occasionally for them. Just like, is just, again, feels like a novelty thing, something different, you know, a novel prey item for them. They have a really strong response to them. Yeah. Um, But actually I did, I did one of the first things that I actually got one of these things to feed on was, was a, a, a pigeon squab, a baby pigeon. Wow. That, um, that a raven had dropped. There's a, there's, um, a pigeon nest up in our barn and a raven raided it one time. And, um, my partner like walked into the barn as it was happening and the raven dropped this partially eviscerated baby pigeon. Okay. And so, um, um, she mentioned it and I was like, oh, I wonder if the snake would eat that. <laughs> so I like, go and retrieve this partially eviscerated baby pigeon <laughs> and froze it. And then later, you know, later put it in this pod and offered it and the snake ate it. And I was like, okay, wow, that's something. And, um, now I've, I mean, I could go off on really in the weeds about all of the different ridiculous things I've done to get them to diversify the diet beyond that. But, um, it's 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 nice once you can actually find that little thing that'll do it that's really cool connor did you have any trouble when you got the when you got yours uh your snakes the first time uh or when you first got them rather uh did did you have any trouble with them getting them feeding on on whatever you're feeding most often or or was it a pretty straightforward thing um the thrasops were they were pretty easy i i think i kind of underestimated how easy it would be with the male because i was feeding him what the company that sold them to me was feeding him, which is live rodents. So that's what I started offering just initially just to get him to eat something. And I didn't even offer frozen thought or anything like that. So I kind of wish I had like tried that initially, but I totally didn't. Um, um, and then with a the female, I immediately, cause I got her a few months after I got the male 
Um, and she pretty much, it was, it was actually a pretty, I didn't expect her to take it because I think I had got her like the day previously. So she had only been in my care for like a day. Oh, wow. Maybe don't feed a snake after you just got it. But <laughs> I had a, I used to have a hydrodynastes gigas or a false water mm-hmm. cobra. And I mean, that thing ate like every meal. I mean, <laughs> you all probably know like their feeding response and stuff. Um, but for some reason, just on this one meal, I just didn't want this rat pup. Um, and I was told that one of the things that the company that I got it from was eating was rat pups. So I just decided it's already thought out, whatever. So I kind of just draped it on a, bl- a branch. Um, and I came back a couple hours later and it was gone. So, wow. Nice. You know, it was really easy. And honestly, the mail probably wouldn't, I probably didn't have to go through all the trouble of mm-hmm. eating live rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and now they're actually eating mostly bird prey items um chicks and quail an occasional mouse and i'm about to start trying to implement eggs i don't know how much like if they'd be eating a lot of eggs in the wild and actually i forgot i'm also feeding reptilians um, okay. that reptilian prey aspect of their diet um I've read like one report of someone seeing, I don't remember what species it was, but some thrasop species raiding a nest. And I'm pretty sure they were like, they were chicks. They weren't eggs, but um, I bought this little African like weaver bird nest replica. It's for, yeah, it's for um, people that are actually keeping birds to use as a nest. Mm-hmm. But I hung it up the enclosure. I haven't tested out yet because I haven't actually got eggs yet. But she's honestly shown no interest. I was kind of hoping to be <laughs> or something, but I don't know. She probably sniffed it when I wasn't looking, and I haven't seen her go anywhere cool. near me. Mm-hmm. But the thrasops have been pretty easy. Um, where? Or go ahead. Uh, where? Where does one get a bird nest replica? Where did you find that? Um, you know, I was actually looking for a while and I couldn't find one. And then that mutual friend that we were talking about a minute ago, should I say his name? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's fine. Okay. Yeah. Max, his name is Max Stab, and he also keeps thrasops. He has a lot of the same interests as me. So I talked to him a lot and he found, I don't know how he found it. Cause like I'm scouring through Google trying to find exactly what he found, like just a weaver nest. It's pretty simple, yeah. but I was finding these like like woven ones they didn't look like a real nest they clearly looked like a human made this i was trying to find kind of a more natural looking one and he sent me the link to this one that he found i don't know how i didn't find it i mean i probably sat there for like 40 minutes (laughs) rousing through so many weird websites looking at all these (laughs) replicas but i eventually found that through him and We'll see how it goes. I don't know if they're going to eat the eggs. I've never tried it. But That's cool. I'll That'll be curious be... to hear. Yeah, yeah. Same. Yeah. I might just end up putting, like, their frozen thawed feeders in there, too. Like, you know, every once in a while, bird. So it's kind of a nest rating, you know, type of experience. Yeah. And then I was going to go into the mimophis, too. The yeah, mimophis, yeah, please. Yeah. Um, Every there's not a lot out there on them, like not a lot of people have kept them from what I have seen. But 
they seem to be pretty willing to eat, which is great. Um, like I have two. So one of them, the first meal, actually, I just did live. I gave them live anoles. So now I have to keep these live brown anoles, which is just great. Um, <laughs> but um, the second meal I offered frozen thawed and one of them took it, one of them didn't. And ever since then, that one has been taking them. And ever since that other one just has not. And I've been trying to kind of do different things to get them to eat it. Like I've tried scenting live anoles with the dead anoles. Mm. And I'm also now trying to do pre-kill. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. the same thing, just a not live animal. Mm-hmm. But so far it's not working. They're, he seems to be interesting. fight oriented. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. But, yeah, but we're still in the beginning with them. I mean, I don't even think I've had them a month now. Oh, so, wow. Super fresh, huh? Yeah. They actually they came from Brittany from Ivory Exotics, though. Oh. So I'm, I'm pretty happy to say that I got them from there, though, because, I mean, yeah. she's got a pretty good reputation. Like, I don't think, like, some other people, she's not going to sell you a half-dead snake that's, like, destined for death. Sure, yeah, man. Brittany. Brittany's great. She's definitely one of my one of my favorite people in the hobby in the in the herpoculture world and super knowledgeable. Um, yeah. She and I were actually just 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 uh, messaging today. Um, and she um I don't think she'll mind me sharing this, but um she had um a mock viper, uh somnodynasties that she has. Um accepted a um brained anole off of tongs um which is the first time she's ever tried that or it's the first time she's ever gotten a response from that but it wasn't eating she offered the same anole on tongs um before and the snake showed no interest and then she brained it so she exposed some of the brain fluid essentially and offered it again and it grabbed it right away remarkable might be something to try that's something that I actually um, found worked with uh, one of one of the Spilotes that I have. Um, I found like I I um, I offered her a frozen thawed rodent, and like the the is is gross, but the face was kind of smashed, and um, she actually took it off of tongs, and she had never like she would. She, she would never take anything off tongs and she was a pretty reluctant feeder in general. Um, and so then I was like, Oh, like maybe I should start try braining. And so then I did. And that, that was the thing. It was like, that's all she wanted. As soon as, as soon as she smelled like the brain, she was on it and she would eat anything off the tongs. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. It might be something to try with, with, um, with this mimophis. I don't, I don't know if it'll work, but it's just it's so it's so interesting how like there's all these little random things that people do like like boiling pinkies or like breaking yeah. them or like oh like I mean it's kind of absurd in so many ways but again I think that it's you know figuring out what going through the emotions and figuring out what it is that the animal will take is so much better than the alternative of trying to like force feed it and do that whole thing. I I, I think it's funny because. Um... We think of, we think about that as like somewhat absurd, but at the same time, we, uh, 
We're like monkeys that drive around in cars and eat like <laughs> eat Snickers and shit like that. You know what I'm saying? Like it totally. It shouldn't be that weird that we, you know, sometimes you just got to bust the head open of a pinky and get get the snake <laughs> to eat. You know, every once in a while you just got to half eviscerate this pigeon you found in your barn and feed it to your <laughs> snakes, man. You know, like it shouldn't be I mean, it is weird. I know what you're saying. It is it is bizarre that there's these weird tricks or these little these little adjustments we have to make to sort of encourage things to do what they would normally do, given their right. more more natural circumstances. Right. I, I know. I know what you're saying. I just sort of being a smart ass. <laughs> no, no. It's just it's just one of those things where like I laugh at myself, you know, as yeah. I'm doing this kind of thing. Like, like oh. the, the biggest the biggest one like is that like one of the things I've, I figured out to um get a snake that's like okay so I, say i'll have you know a, a snake that's eating i know it'll eat eat a songbird but it won't eat a chick or a rat <laughs> okay well and i was sitting there thinking one day like if i could just like tie a rat <laughs> to that songbird <laughs> oh man so that it like it eats the songbird and then just starts eating the rat i bet it would work and so then i i i bought some some collagen casing that's made for, like for like making sausages okay it was like a fully digestible like casing thing and i mm. cut it into like little strips and like tried it like tie on i'm like here i am like tying on <laughs> I'm tying a rodent, a rodent onto a bird and but it works and now that snake will eat rodents off tongs no problem it's just what like something about like actually initiating the food response like it's it's like about something has to trigger that you know for the snake to, to recognize okay this is food i'll eat this um, right and yeah so anyway that's been a really helpful helpful one actually that collagen casing trick i've done it a lot now with getting different things to eat that's pretty clever diversity very clever <laughs> but definitely every time i do it i'm like what the what am i doing what am i doing <laughs> with my life over here yeah well thankfully yeah. i don't have to do it anymore yeah, yeah. You're all done with that now. <laughs> <laughs> that's great man and well i'll probably give that braining thing a try honestly mm -hmm. a shot. yeah a shot. it's worth yeah. it now honestly before i go to the lengths of force feeding i'll probably just give it live because i know it's eating live yeah oh yeah, yeah totally yeah yeah i'll probably just wait off until there's either that thing that i did or just that specific day for some mm -hmm. reason Hopefully it'll start. Yeah. I think but. it will. Oh yeah, I bet it will. Most like, things will eventually. Yeah. I mean, like I said, like I've only had a month now. I think I've only offered food like four or five times at this point. So mm -hmm. kind of in the early days of it. Go ahead, Roy. Sorry. What's the what's the size of those snakes? They strike me as like being pretty, pretty small. Are they like, like 18, 24 inches kind of size? Or are they a little bit bigger than that? They're just slightly larger. I think, mm -hmm. I don't know like how much information there is that's accurate, but I want to say like 30 inches. Okay. Like, even then they're still like, um, pretty slender. Um, 
that's something I want to move forward. Like if I do get more animals, I, I want to just keep tiny things. Yeah. Your space. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. I, I agree more and more like the stuff that I keep or the stuff that I'm drawn to keeping is stuff that is, um, yeah, small, smaller species in relatively large setups, you know, it's, 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 just a lot more gratifying for me to keep something small and see it like have a lot of space, you know, relative to its body size. Yeah. Um, you know, like the, the big exception to that, of course, for me is being this Pelotes, which are massive, but um, in which I wish I could just like give, you know, a 30 foot room to. Yeah. I feel that way about the Egyptians too. It's like, oh, it's yeah. never, there's never, I keep them in pretty large enclosures, but they're just not big enough, not even close. You yeah. know, it's just, and you're just like, all right, I need to figure out what I'm doing here. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. yeah. Especially for animals that move so much, they can move so fast. You know, it's, it's like, so it's kind of, I, you know, you always feel bad if like they can't really get up to a run. They can in, in, in my cages yeah. for, but only for a second you know, yeah. like just for a second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, we were talking with Eric, you know, he's talking about basilisk, you know, yeah. like, this is an animal that can run like 50 yards across water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. hard to provide. And he was talking about setting up those big, um, those big runs out in, yeah, you know, yeah. during the summer and he just let, puts them out there and lets them rip. Yeah. Full. So that's, cool. that's pretty cool. Full clip across the yard, man. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Oh, he like puts them outside in the yard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. It was Eric Haycraft, and uh, he was talking about setting up these big, large pens in in the in the backyard, I guess, and uh, letting the basilisks just hit top speed, just full clip across the lawn and inside these large pens. And he's got some a few photos of some of the enclosures he does out uh, on his on his Instagram, and just gorgeous, man. You really can't can't beat what that guy's up to <laughs> yeah he's got yeah. some pretty neat stuff too like he works with yeah. some really weird like little what like are they Swiss, called the the scoloporus mm-hmm. yeah yeah heck um, yeah yeah those are awesome yeah beautiful There's, those those yeah. are just like just looking at them it's like how is that how does yeah. that exist you know it's like it's like <laughs> those jeweled beetles you know like yes like what is the evolutionary advantage of being this gorgeous <laughs> or the the fl- this yes the same thing with the flatworms right there's um yeah, yeah those all those different flatworms that have they look like damn candy you know mm-hmm. you're like why what are you doing like what's this what's this crap what are you doing <laughs> you dorks you've been around for millions of years get out of here <laughs> have you seen that meme that's that's uh it's a meme it's just somebody holding a gummy worm and it just says nature is amazing <laughs> <laughs> no no that's great man i haven't seen that that sounds hysterical it's so i love it yeah that's great well um i think we're cruising up on we're we're past an hour and a half aren't we yes sir yeah we're almost at two hours yeah we're just under two um well there's just a couple more questions i want to ask you connor and then we can kind of move towards closing but um one is i'm curious like you said you're you're it sounds like you're very intentionally trying to kind of move slowly and not get in over your head and 
um which yeah. actually i'd love to he- i'd love to hear about like why that is for you or like what that means to you but also um you know a little bit of angel on the shoulder a little bit of devil on the shoulder um, i'm curious if there are any any species out there that are kind of calling to you that you're curious about keeping that you um kind of have your eye on or yeah anything on the horizon um yeah what was the first part of the question uh the first part was just kind of like why like acknowledging that you're starting slow and kind of like why like why is that important to you and yeah um i think getting the thrasops was kind of a wake-up call like as much as i probably shouldn't have got them at the time that i did like i didn't realize that i shouldn't have got them after i got them it definitely woke me up like wow this is a very capable snake it definitely needs something more than what i thought it did mm-hmm. so and that was actually like the first snake like that that i've ever kept um so yeah i just didn't expect what what they would be like and what they would mm-hmm. what they were capable of um so i don't know i think that kind of taught me a lesson like i need to mm-hmm. not jump into things like that ever again mm-hmm. um i'm really happy i got them though i love those guys um and yeah i've kind of now that i've i've had the larger they're not even like nothing like a spilodes or mm-hmm. other dry mark on or something size wise but something a little larger and that needs more space i'm definitely sizing down like i know that i'm gonna want to keep them in a large enclosure I don't know what my future space is going to look like. So I need to make sure that I can actually house that enclosure and everything else. Um, so yeah, like the Momophis, um, I actually, I, well, sorry, it's actually the first time that I've ever gotten an animal and like had more than enough space for it. I actually was going to keep them in a four by two by four starting out. Um, and I didn't realize how tiny they were. Like they're, they're like 18 inches and I measured, I, sorry, I didn't measure them. I weighed them and one of them was like almost 11 grams. And then the other, oh, wow. I think it was 13. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're not yeah. that long, but they're super slender as well. So they're super tiny. Like they can't even, well, I guess they definitely could take down a large anole, but I feel more comfortable mm-hmm. feeding them like medium size anoles. Um, so yeah, like I ended up having to set up something kind of that I had offhand. It's basically a 20 gallon enclosure. Um, and that's like more than enough space for them right now. I don't see them showing any behaviors as to like wanting to get out or glass surfing or being uncomfortable in that space. So it's really, it's nice. I think we already kind of touched on it, but like, it's really nice keeping the small species where you can so easily just give them plenty of space yeah um, yeah that's how i feel about the xenogama as well it's the same kind of thing it's like you have an egyptian euro on one hand and a xenogama tailor eye on the other it's like you could put i mean i feel like i could house a trio of xenogama in the same enclosure that i have the egyptians in and it'd be like all right that seems like enough for these three yeah. tiny little bastard lizards but it's not enough <laughs> Not enough for a big Egyptian. So you're, yeah. Not enough for pork chop. No, pork chops, the, dude, he's he's a legend, man. That guy, <laughs> he's an absolute legend. He's a, he's a real savage, that that big, big jerk bastard. 
<laughs> he's a, I love that guy. I love all the updates on Porkchop. He's a, yeah, me too, man. Me too. I love him. I love interacting with the guy. He's such a damn beast. Uh, <laughs> and, and he's still growing too. You know, you always think wow. that's it's about as big as he's going to get. And he just keeps growing, keeps shedding, wow. keep going through new phases. And I got to, I have to update his weight and length because uh, I don't think he's anywhere near. I don't think he's close to being done yet. I mean, um, the biggest one I've ever seen was a 32 or 30, 32 inch male owned by a guy years ago on, he was on uh, YouTube. He was, uh, wow. Art Gecko or something, but he was, his name was Ed Carr. And he, yeah, this is a long time ago, early two thousands. He was breeding Egyptian euros and, uh, she's had a male and a couple of females, but his big male, uh, was named Grover. I'm sure his YouTube's still up there floating around somewhere. The thing you'll recognize it because he had um, uh, like fungus, like a like a sort of a persistent fungal infection on his back that left these big white patches from time to time. Um, and he was managing, he managed the infection and it, you know, it wouldn't come around that much, but it was, you know, flare up here and there. But anyway, that was a massive, massive Egyptian. And I, pork chops, not that far off, man. I'm hoping I'm like, all right, I'm going to get the biggest one on record. I'm going to make him as big as he can get. Cause he's a honker dude. He's big old, head, <laughs> you know? So cool. Yeah. Just don't want to get wow. bit anymore by that guy. <laughs> yeah. I would not like that. No, no, not, not anymore. Not this time. <laughs> Boy, you can have, isn't the male that you have handsome, handsome boy. Yeah. 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 Isn't he like the largest recorded male or Spilodius? I think I don't think he's the largest recorded, but I think that he is. Um, I think he's the largest one in captivity right now, Uh, as far as far as I know. Um, unless like a really big wild caught one has come in somewhere. Um, but he, I mean, he was over ten feet when I got him back a few years ago and at that point like i don't i think he was the only one really in that size range there were some other some others between like nine and ten and close to ten feet but he was well over well over that and i don't, I mean obviously it's hard to measure him he's you know but he um last time i weighed him he was over 10 pounds um which for which for a colubrid like a pretty lean colubrid like like dry Marcon, you know, they get, and, and even hydronastes, they get much heavier and girthier, but Spilodes like, or healthy Spilodes are pretty lean. Um, mm. You know, they're, they're powerful, strong snakes, but they're pretty lean. And so um, he's a serious snake. He's a, big, he's a big boy. His head, his head is the, the thing though about him. That's like really, that just trips me out because it's just huge. It's just, you know, he's, <laughs> it's like you can't really see you know but it's it's, it's big for a for a colubrid it's like it looks like a cobra head or something you know so cool yeah so damn cool um well so uh not to to take the take the take the mic away from from roy or whatever but i would imagine are we going to get onto the big quest the one we always the the typical yeah, one yeah, yeah okay cool so um we have this, uh, Connor, we have this question that we've been asking every person and that we will probably make a consistent 
question on the show, um, regardless of whether or not the person's been on before or not, it's probably something we'll continue to have as an option for people. But, and, and that question is why herpeticulture? So, um, and that can be somewhat open-ended, right? So don't feel too restricted about how, how to answer. That can be everything from, because I want to, to here's the, here's the, the sort of the ecological reason why take it as broadly or specifically as you, as you, as you can imagine, uh, what, what, why, why do we do this? Why do we do this thing? You want to, that's it. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Let me think on it for a second. Sure. Take your time. I don't know. I mean, I think I just kind of found the niche that I was interested in that happened to be herpticulture. It really could have been anything. Um, I think they, specifically like the colubrids, arboreal, diurnal stuff, I find really appealing. And so that's kind of in the herpticultural realm. That's kind of what I focus on, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. I probably could have given a better answer, but. I think like what I, I think that kind of like what, what I'm getting at sometimes when I'm thinking of this question that might be helpful is like, like, what do you get out of it? Like, what is it? Yeah. What is herpetoculture doing for you? <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and I honestly like, and you don't, like, you don't have to have an answer to that either. Cause that's like a, that's a weird question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to get asked. And, but it's something that I started thinking about after a while is, you know, when I'm sitting there tying a collagen casing to um, <laughs> frozen, frozen creatures together, I'm like, what am I doing with my life? And I'm like, why herpetoculture? Why, why do I do this? What am I getting out of this? I could have been a damn so, stockbroker, man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, um, I've forsaken gainful employment for the pursuit of cool, cool snakes. Yeah. Lizards. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I don't know if that's that's like a helpful framing to offer. And, and if, if it's not, let it go. But I mean, I don't know. I think it kind of keeps me mentally stable. I don't know. Not that I'm mentally unstable, but <laughs> definitely, I guess it's like a reason to keep trying. And yeah, I'm also the kind of person that I can't really... I have to like constantly have projects to do or else I'm just so freaking bored. Like if I sit all day, cause every once in a while I will, like I'll have no plans for an entire day and I'll kind of get everything I need to done, get it. I can't talk everything I need to do done pretty fast. And then I'll just sit around and I feel so worthless. Like there's <laughs> why, what am I doing? So I don't know. I think it kind of just keeps me probably a little more sane. Mm-hmm. totally yeah i i totally relate to that there's something like yeah there's something about like just yeah being able to tinker and f- focus on a project and yeah you know, like there's also something for me too that is like it's it's therapeutic to to just be in the reptile room for yeah. a day like especially right now since i'm really noticing it because with this move that i'm in the middle of um, all my reptiles are an hour away from me now. And so I, I'm, it's not like I, I'm not living in the same house with them, you know? So when I was living at home, 
I was in, in and out of the reptile room a few times a day, at least, you know, just checking on things. Hey, what are you guys doing in here? You know? Yeah. <laughs> now it's like, okay, I'm coming three days a week or so to like feed everybody and clean water bowls and make sure everybody's alive and happy and doing, and everyone's doing great. Um, but I, but I come and I'm, you know, I spend like five hours just with the reptiles and I, I noticed that like, oh, this is so good for me. Like, <laughs> I just feel so, I just feel so in the zone and like, so dropped in afterwards. And um, yeah, I think there's something about that, what herpetoculture can offer in that regard. It sounds like a little bit, maybe true for you. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It's definitely, it, it's fun to have like this routine with your animals and, and, you know, when they know that you're coming and you know, that they know that you're there, they know that you're going to bring food. They kind of, you know, like a lot of times I, in the summertime, I'll get into the shop and I'll walk down towards the back door and I'll open up the back door and then the big garage door. And as I walk down that first aisle, you know, most of the euros that are out will run towards me, you know, on either side of me, given, you know, whichever pin they're in and they'll come running towards me. Cause they're like, yeah, you got any, you got some food, you got something. And then I'll walk by and they just look at me like, okay. Like, you know, they, they, really, really dude. And, and it's fun to have that, have that relationship with them and be like, Hey, hey this guy, what are you doing there guy? And you know, it's <laughs> cause they're all so quirky and they all have their own uh, weird little, little personality or, or lack yeah. thereof, you know? <laughs> yeah. Phil, do you, do you, um, did your euros recognize you? Like, do they differentiate between you and other people? I, 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 I think so. I obviously, you know, I, I don't, I haven't tested it, but like, for example, um, you know, pork chop, the big Egyptian, he has a very different reaction to me than say, if my mom has stopped by and is walking around the shop, he's a yeah. totally different reaction to her or, um, the other day. So, so recently, um, my fiance's sister, and then two or three of these, uh, kids who are the children of friends of mine who used to, I used to teach him jujitsu and stuff. Um, they're all just, you know, just looking for stuff to do in the summer. And so I'll be like, I'll give you 20 bucks if you come by and help me pick up shit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And sometimes, um, we'll be walking by an enclosure and the ornate, you know, like it's one female ornate that I'm thinking of in particular, she'll come running over thinking I've got food. And I walked by and there's three people with me and she came running and then stopped when she saw the other three people and was like, huh, you know, and, and just, I dropped food in and she was just like, I'm not going to eat this yet. She just kind of stayed there uh -huh. and just looked, and looked and looked and was just like, do I need to bail? And eventually, you know what I mean? So I, I do think that they recognize different people and mm -hmm. if not specifically maybe just generally right it might just yeah. be that one's bigger and louder than the other one i've seen most of the time or the other that's the smaller quieter one and it came mm -hmm. at the enclosure from a different angle than it normally does because mm -hmm. e even in even in the same enclosure the your Euro, some euros if i go at it you know like i you, you know my shop has two main or three main rows and I rarely walk down the center row because I can mm -hmm. access the two middle rows by the outer rows, you know, yeah, and yeah. every once in a while, I'll walk down that center row and the animals in the enclosures will 
fucking freak out and just <laughs> just rip it, you know, just dive into the hides. They're like, holy shit, nothing ever Not comes up. Ah, you know, like nothing <laughs> ever comes by that frame of of, yeah. of view, you know. So you definitely do That's see really that stuff. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Are <laughs> you tired of them being like so rambunctious about seeing you or those certain individuals like coming up to you and getting excited about your presence? Oh, Sometimes yeah. Sometimes it kind of annoys me. Oh, like, yeah. Watch them do something rather than just sit there and beg. Yes. Oh, t- to- totally, man. And and it's so it's so funny because um, it can ca- it can be from different causes. So, for example, I have one Euromastics Yemenensis female that laid dud eggs this year, but she laid them in her box in, in this nest box that I made for her. And for months, months after she laid, she has been nest guarding that box just relentlessly. And it's made cage cleaning an absolute nightmare because you just put your hand anywhere in and she will come running from across this six foot diameter enclosure from one end all the way to the other. And she'll launch herself off of her nest box, trying to grab my hand just because I was going to reach in and pull a turd out or other ones that do it because it's food and they, and they learn it. Or I have um, a young male Yemenensis who he, every time I put my hand in the cage, he's pancaking out turning on his side and doing some push-ups because he's like, Hey, what's up? You know, like he thinks this is the hand I can bone down with. And he, you know, it, it, it does get a little bit frustrating, but I would so much rather have that than have one ornate uh, out of all the, I've had a lot of ornata and, and I, I currently have a lot of ornata and out of all the animals, I've got one damn female who to this day, is just not okay with me walking by the enclosure ever. Mm. She's never comfortable. She's always, it doesn't matter. It's been this way since she, she, I've had her for five or six years and I, and I never get in there to take her out. I don't hold her. I just, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the best that I've, I've had happen is when she's gravid, she, or when she's specifically when she's receptive to the male, she will eat her food in front of me. That's it. That's the best. That's the best it gets because the rest of the time I walk by the enclosure and she flies under a roof tile. So I, I, and I've tried trying to, you know, what be around more often. And again, I don't really go pick her up. And so Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not like I'm trying to harass her or I'm never trying to pull her out of her, her, uh, her hide. I'm never trying to mess with her or waste her time, but she just, just for whatever her personality is just like, no, not cool with people at all. So, mm. <laughs> but I'd rather have one. Anyway, the point was I'd rather have the ones that, that bother me and beg for food a little bit rather than the one that just bails because it just makes me feel like she's under more stress than she should be. Yeah, you, totally. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but yeah. what can you do in this case? It's again, it's like, I'm, I'm really doing everything I can to not bother her, you know, uh, uh, so I, d- I don't feel guilty about it because she's the only one. So that makes me feel like it's more of a personality thing, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and it's not even, uh, it, I have others that are very skittish of, you know, around me and they don't want me to reach my hand in the enclosure, but 
they wreck, they, they are so sharp. They know when I'm just walking by, they can tell when I'm going to reach into the enclosure and they wait for when, okay, is he going to reach into the enclosure? Now I'm going to go or like, yeah. you know, and, and maybe they don't even always bail for the hide. Maybe they just bail for the far wall or something. Right. But this one, this one damn animal, and she happens to be drop dead. I mean, they're all beautiful, but she happens to be a, an exceptionally beautiful uh, female ornate. I've, I've never seen one with her just sort of weird powder blue. Mm. It's, it's just abnormal, I think for females. And she's just doesn't want anything to do with me. Just not going to have it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I can agree with that. Like it's definitely, I would, I would say it's probably better to have a begging animal. That's not scared of you at all than the, the other end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just her though. <laughs> none of the, literally none of the other ones, no princeps, no Yemenensis, no Thomasi, no, Mor- well, there's one Moroccan, I guess it's similar, <laughs> similar, but uh, not as bad, not as bad. And, and, and I take it as kind of like a, a point of pride too, because you know, the whole thing in so many reptiles is front opening enclosures tend yeah. to lend, lend themselves better to, towards not being afraid of the, the keeper, you know? And, and yet I have all these top opening pens and I'm quite grateful that there's such a short list of them that, uh, that, that are that afraid of me, you know, they, they yeah. learn, they seem to learn so quickly. It's just, it's just cause I don't fuck with them. You know, I I'll, I'll hand feed them and I'll take them out when I have to clean them or if I want to take a photo, but I try to respect their space you know, for the most part, I don't, I don't want to, I want them to be as happy and comfortable as possible. I'm not trying to, they hate being picked up most of the time, you know, it's just, yeah, I think that's just pretty much what it's all about is just like anything. It's just creating positive reinforcement. You know, you're, you create a good track record of positive interactions with an animal. It's not going to be afraid of you, but if that's you, right. If you start having, if you start having negative interactions then you stack another negative interaction on top of that you're you're quickly going to get yourself into a hole that's going to get pretty hard to get out of and years years to get out of yeah yeah totally (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh man well uh well shit that that uh is some some excellent stuff um connor where can uh people find you on like the socials and and whatnot Pretty much just on Instagram, I would say um, at Philosamnus. I mean, I'm on Facebook, but I don't post that much. I'm kind of just on Facebook for the groups, honestly. Great. Well, yeah, sure. Fair enough. The the groups are probably the only reason to be on Facebook anymore, right? That's the only reason why I'm there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Great. Um, Well, Roy, do you want to take us out and then I'll hit the recording and it? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, um, yeah, just again, um, you can find us on Instagram at Project Herpetoculture. Phil's at Arids Only. I'm at Wellspring Herpetoculture or Wellspring Herp on Instagram. Yeah. And um, yeah, thanks again to Dylan and uh, the Animals at Home Network for hosting us so graciously. And um, yeah, thanks, Connor, for coming on. It's been great to chat with you and um, I'm stoked to, stoked to follow along with your uh, herpetoculture journey and see what you do next. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. And we'll have to have you back on uh, as you continue to do more. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Sick. All right, here, let me hit the stop.